You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, titled, Creating a Healthier Future Through Prevention of Child Maltreatment. Another evidence-based program is called the Positive Parenting Program, or Triple P. It was developed in Australia by a clinical psychologist who, after spending years working with families in crisis, decided that he wanted to prevent families from needing to seek therapeutic services. Triple P is made up of a collection of interventions. The frequency and intensity of what gets delivered depends on the needs of the family. So in the outermost ring, everyone gets the media messages, but in the center, only families in crisis get the intensive one-on-one counseling. Ideally, everyone in a community has access to some level of Triple P. Triple P has also been rigorously evaluated for many outcomes. A CDC-funded multi-county trial in South Carolina was the first study of Triple P to measure impact on child maltreatment. Our study provided evidence that Triple P can impact child maltreatment, estimating that for every 100,000 children in a community, we can prevent approximately 300 six cases of child maltreatment, 188 out-of-home placements, and 60 injuries seen in hospitals, either through ER visits or hospitalizations. Triple P is available to any community that wishes to implement it. Communities purchase program materials and training for professionals from Triple P America. Through a partnership with the Doris Duke Foundation, CDC Foundation, and HRSA, CDC is currently funding two demonstration sites in Michigan and North Carolina to implement Triple P through local public health agencies and community health centers. The cost of Triple P is estimated to be just under $13 per child within the community, and Triple P is also cost beneficial, providing approximately $47 in benefits for every dollar spent. Another area in child maltreatment where we have an evidence-based program is abusive head trauma prevention. Abusive head trauma prevention programs give parents of newborns information about the serious adverse effects of shaking and offer guidance on how to handle a crying infant to avoid shaking. One such program was developed and evaluated in New York by a pediatric neurosurgeon who dealt with the travesty of abusive head trauma after the fact. The program was delivered in hospital maternity wards before patients and their babies were discharged. This evaluation showed a 47% reduction in abusive head trauma cases. These findings have influenced 14 states to pass legislation mandating some form of abusive head trauma prevention. Currently, CDC is funding two statewide demonstrations of abusive head trauma prevention. Our goal is to evaluate them for their impact on abusive head trauma and to determine if there is a cost benefit. The first is in an expansion of the program tested in New York, and the second is an evaluation in North Carolina of the period of purple crying, a program developed by the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome. Jim mentioned the need to strengthen national and state-level prevention systems. We are doing just that with our public health leadership initiative. Its purpose is to strengthen public health capacity to lead child maltreatment prevention in states. Why this focus on public health agencies? First and foremost, as you have heard today, child maltreatment is a public health problem. 
Also, public health has a long history of working on complex problems that are not solvable by any one discipline, knowledge base, or value system. We have assessed the current public health role at the state level and found a greater degree of engagement than we had expected, but it's still not where it needs to be. Dr. Turner will provide an in-depth look at what Florida is doing. Even though the evidence we have isn't perfect, we need to act on it. We have effective individual and family-based programs. We need to simultaneously fill in the gaps in our knowledge. It's especially important that we understand how to change community and societal factors that contribute to putting parents and families at risk. Dr. McCarthy will focus his comments on policies that have the potential to prevent child maltreatment. Conducting policy evaluations would be a smart investment for our field at this time. Public health is a good delivery system for acting on what we know and standing at the ready to incorporate any new discoveries. Only through this type of coordinated, interactive system will we reach our goals of improving the lives of children by ensuring that they all have safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and by stopping child maltreatment. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Shairi Turner, the Deputy Secretary for Health and the Director of the Office of Minority Health in the Florida Department of Health. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today to discuss Florida's effort in the area of child maltreatment prevention. I will present some specific data on Florida's current child maltreatment burden and some data about longer-term consequences, similar to what you heard from Jim at the national level. Then I will provide some context for how child maltreatment prevention and child protection is addressed in Florida, followed by more detailed information on the role of public health in preventing child maltreatment. Florida has over 4 million children. There were over 45,000 confirmed cases of child maltreatment in 2009. The majority of confirmed cases, 53%, were neglect, with about 11% confirmed for physical abuse and about 5% confirmed as sexual abuse. Florida rates of 11.3 per 1,000 cases are similar to the national average of 9.3 per 1,000. As for the nation, our numbers are likely just the tip of the iceberg. Certain types of maltreatment are less likely to be reported, and other cases are more challenging to validate. But even with limited data, this results in a significant societal and public health problem for the state. Because it is very important to have good data, in 2008, Florida added a subset of questions mirroring the adverse childhood experiences study to the behavioral risk factor surveillance system. Jim already explained what ACEs are, so here is just a reminder. Among the 8,821 respondents in Florida, only 13% had zero ACE risk factors, and 28.1% had four or more. This group reported two to three times more physical, mental health, and social concerns than those with zero to two ACE factors. At the state level, the economic burden of child maltreatment is large. The estimated cost to Florida is over $9 billion per year. 
To put that in perspective, the Florida legislature just passed a $67 billion budget. This then represents over 13% of the entire state budget. Now that you have a glimpse of the burden of child maltreatment in Florida, let's explore what child maltreatment prevention efforts occur in Florida. As elsewhere, traditionally the focus in Florida has been on responding to reported cases of child abuse and neglect. In Florida, the lead agency responsible for investigation of child maltreatment is the Department of Children and Families. They also handle child welfare, mental health, and substance abuse, just to name a few services. They are ultimately responsible for the disposition of the child in a reported abuse case. The Department of Health has a leadership role in providing several kinds of prevention services to families to deter child maltreatment from occurring in the first place, and I will speak more about this later in this talk. Public health has had a growing role in preventing child maltreatment in Florida, starting with the passing of the Florida Prevention Plan focused on improving the status of young children. In 2007, legislation mandated clearly public health's role in child maltreatment and so codified the Department of Health's official role in child maltreatment prevention and helped to make this work sustainable. The Governor's Office of Adoption and Child Protection was established, as well as the Children and Youth Cabinet. The list of members on this cabinet shown here is impressive. Also, a new Child Abuse Prevention and Permanency Advisory Council was convened, chaired by the state's new Chief Child Advocate, and charged with the development of Florida's 18-month statewide plan on prevention and permanency. While a number of pieces were in place for some time, the changes in 2007 have led to more systemic and integrated thinking about the prevention system. The vision for the plan was that children are raised in healthy, safe, stable, and nurturing families. You are right. This is very similar to the SSNRs that you heard about from Janet. The plan highlights a number of important prevention strategies, such as infusing protective factors into systems that serve both parents and children, and providing information on ways to ensure children are safe and nurtured and live in stable environments that promote well-being. For example, in a tri-county area, Clay, Duval, and Nassau counties, the local community-based care lead agency for child welfare, a public-private partnership, has hired a nurse to work with their families, including helping them build the five protective factors. Statewide, our Medicaid Child Health Checkup Program is incorporating into their literature and outreach efforts that go to pediatricians, nurses, and families information about the five protective factors, their importance, and how to build them. Please note that monitoring and evaluation of the plan implementation are also included. Here are just some of key Florida activities that create a network for the prevention of child maltreatment. Let me point out a few. The Healthy Start program has an assessment tool called Tell Us About Yourself that incorporates personal and family history and has recently incorporated components of the ACE scoring tool. It is used to help focus interventions in the prenatal and early childhood periods. The Teen Parent Program, Florida Parent Helpline, and the Florida Circle of Parents provide parent-to-parent -parent support. 
while Speak Up, Be Safe is an elementary school child abuse prevention curriculum being introduced into Florida's schools. The child protection teams within the Department of Health play an important role in conjunction with the Department of Children and Families. They are medically directed, multidisciplinary, community-based programs that examine cases of potential child abuse or neglect. They supplement the child protective investigations of the Department of Children and Families or the designated sheriff's offices. Experts in the field include specially trained pediatricians, nurses, clinical case coordinators, psychologists, and attorneys. The healthcare services providers are especially trained and qualified to notice the smallest physical or behavioral changes in a child, which can lead to early detection and reporting potential abuse cases. In Florida, over 250,000 reports of possible child maltreatment are made annually to the Florida Child Abuse Hotline. In 2009, these teams reviewed over 190,000 reports and then provided services to 29,000 children. 16,000 were found to have experienced child maltreatment. Another critical component to child maltreatment prevention is the Child Abuse Death Review Committee established in 1999 as an independent entity administratively housed within the Department of Health. It reviews the facts and circumstances of all deaths of children from birth through age 18, which occur as a result of verified child abuse or neglect. The purpose of the review is to identify deficiencies or problems in the services provided to these children and their families by public and private agencies. The findings and recommendations are used to aid in future prevention efforts by informing changes in legislation or policies and helping to develop practice standards that support healthy children and reduce preventable child abuse deaths. The staff includes those from the Department of Health, and seven other state agencies, as well as 11 members appointed by the state Surgeon General. In 2009, there were 197 reviews, which comprised only 7% of all child deaths in Florida, and they were predominantly young males. Although this is the last step in addressing child maltreatment, and some would say that these are the children that the system has failed, much information can be gathered that will potentially save the lives of other children. In conclusion, Florida continues to make strides in our child maltreatment prevention efforts by having a state statute and infrastructure in place to support public health participation, particularly around prevention approaches. This allows for the work to be sustainable and provides clarity on the role of each agency. For the Department of Health, being at the table at the strategic planning stage is important in order to be fully engaged and part of the long-term solutions. This ensures that prevention approaches are prioritized rather than relying solely on response in emergent situations. Public health brings a great deal to the table primarily by looking at the issue through a broader framework and providing opportunities to interact with families in a non-threatening manner. Also importantly, public health can serve to convene this multi-sector approach by bringing other diverse partners and stakeholders together. Thank you. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 